I heard they checking for me, no one checking on me, so I had to go run up a check. I got the message, homie, ain't no flexing on me, my attorney gon' call and collect. Blessings on blessing for me, my successes only made them envious, they got upset. I had to put all their egos in check. I want the money, the power, respect, and I heard you have so much. Hey, what's going on, Nation? It is AJ Riley from Straight Shooting, who's here to moderate a new show that is airing today on Friday and will air every Friday from here on. It is called The Big Picture, and it's going to be a high-level look at sports from the GM's office with Dylan Bear and Paul Roshan. And we're excited to get this kicked off for you this week. And we're going to jump right into it, gentlemen, because we got a pretty packed show as far as tonight is laid out. And we want to start on the hardwood. You know, we just came off the national championship with Kansas and North Carolina. And we got the NBA playoffs coming up very quickly. So my question to you guys is, if there was something you would fix about basketball, or is there something that might be wrong with basketball? Maybe you don't like the three-pointer or the continuation rules, or maybe LeBron James, right? Maybe that's an answer. And Dylan, I'm going to toss it to you first and kind of hear your thoughts on this. So, yeah, the national championship between Kansas and North Carolina just happened over this past weekend when we are recording this first show. And it felt appropriate to utilize that as a perfect example of certain beliefs that we have, values in, in rules that we stick to in terms of all sports. But basketball is one where Paul and I in specific agree almost across the board, that you'll find very little disagreement in terms of the issues that we believe ha are happening in the sport of basketball. And it's personified best by what occurred in the game itself. North Carolina was up by 16 points, and they notoriously lost the lead. Kansas, for to their credit, came back almost entirely on two-point attempts. North Carolina, on the other hand, had terrible shot selection, just like Jordan Poole back in his college days at the very least. And was also chucking up threes left and right, these prayers, these Steph Curry-type shots. In fact, one of the runs that Kansas was on, and where I believe the game was tied in, uh, in the 50s, if I'm not mistaken, Davis on North Carolina chucked up a three. He made it to kind of cool things down. But if he didn't throw up that prayer and make it, this game could have been even further apart than it already was, which leads me to Paul where you and I agree, which is that the three-point shot is ruining the game of basketball. It's killing it. I, Honest to God, there's nothing more infuriating than sitting down, watching an NBA basketball game, and see 73s launched, and one team wins by 25 because they hit it a 45% clip, and the other team hit it a 17% clip. Yeah. It's not basketball. It, it's it Honestly, it feels like almost like you're in high school and you're going to open gym and you're just chucking up threes and going back and forth. The the post play is, you get a little bit of it, right? But the game doesn't run through centers anymore. But more than that, there's no mid-range game. And you sit back and you say, okay, well, that's analytics driven. There's no mid-range game because they're inefficient shots. Obviously, three is greater than two. And when we've become as efficient at making three-pointers as we have as a league, mid-range shots that you're making, yeah, you're making them 5%, 8% more than you are three-pointers, but they're worth a whole point less, it doesn't make sense to take them. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. Do we need seven-foot centers jacking threes? No. Instead of 
I don't know, playing the post game and getting rebounds like they were made to do. Three-point shooting is not a specialist role in the NBA anymore. It's not because everybody is expected to be able to step back and hit a shot from behind the arc. Is that good for the game of basketball? If all five players on the floor have to be able to hit, does that create a beautiful flowing game? It doesn't. And we can fix this with my first adjustment to the game of basketball. We're moving the three-point line back four feet. Four feet. We're huge jump back. We're, we're talking the bigger than the difference between high school and the pros right now. There are no more corner threes. We're, we're having a continuous normal arc, one that doesn't get skinnier as it goes down at the end. So you'll be out of bounds. You're not even going to be able to take threes halfway down the arc because you'd be OB to take a three from that distance. We're four feet back at the tip and continuing that same distance the entire way around the arc. Now you've given more value to guys like Steph Curry because now it's truly a specialist thing. And those deep threes that he's known for are a part of the game of basketball. But think about how much it will open the floor for spacing when you have so much more ground underneath square footage on the court to cover. The mid-range game comes back. Post play is important again. Your passing lanes are much larger for ball movement. Think of how beautiful the game could look if we had that much more basketball going on instead of you're either taking a shot at the rim or 24 feet back. And there. Yeah, let me jump in there real quick because I I think that you hit on something that's really good is that that flow of the game, right, Paul? Is that if people are just going down and chucking up threes back and forth, there's no flow to the game. So in that same vein, guys, how do we keep that flow going? Dylan? Well, what before moving to the flow aspect of it, there was something that Paul mentioned that I use the national title game because it's a perfect example of how college and the NBA are still separate. They're getting closer together in terms of how just terrible the product is, but college is still good in the aspect that three point shots in the way that we've been describing don't win titles. North Carolina is literally proof of that because Kansas came back on two point shots on pressing running downhill. That is how the game was being played. And in fact, the way that Kansas closed out the game was two post-ups by David McCormick. And so that was flow. So I guess in a way to answer both, the way that you answer the flow is that you heighten post-play again. Now, with Paul's example, you move the three back, post-play is going to be essential because, to be fair, no one's going to be hitting 30-foot mid-range shots. That's not going to happen. So you're going to be forcing action into the paint more. And then you'll have guys on the outside. Let's say that you do are down three and you want to hit a three. Then you are able to scooch it, basically scooch the play back. And you have, let's say that you have a Steph Curry who is still going to be that specialist. He's away from the paint, means more one-on-one action, creates better flow. For sure. Paul, what do you, anything to add to that? Yeah, so my second change also creates a lot of flow in the game of basketball. We talked about if we were to move the three-point line back, how much space that opens. And Dylan's right. Nobody's going to be taking 30-foot mid-range shots. But now the 15-foot shot is a lot more open, and it's viable because you're going to make that 15-foot shot. It'll clip. 
that mathematically makes sense compared to the 20 some foot shot that the three point now is when you move it four feet back. So the game that D Wade grew up terrorizing the NBA on that's back. That's not an inefficient shot anymore, Mm -hmm. but one thing that we all agree slows down and muddies the game of basketball and makes it hard to watch at times is fouls. And we always talk about, oh, you can't play defense and things are so difficult, but fouls muddy up the game. And one thing I've always hated in sports is when defenders are rewarded or anybody really is rewarded for breaking the rules. And what I'm getting at with this is when you intentionally follow a guy who has you beat, whether they're getting to the rack or getting an open shot, and they would have scored, and you follow them, and now they either got to go to the line and earn points that they pretty much already earned by beating you off the dribble, or they've got to inbounds the ball and start their offensive possession all over again. That doesn't make great flowing basketball. I think you guys would agree to that. I would like to see the NBA and basketball as a whole, of course, adopt a more soccer style play through rule. Anyone that's familiar in soccer knows that when an attacking team has the ball and they are followed, they play something called advantage if the offense is in an advantageous position that they can keep playing with the ball instead of having to get whistled and reset and get a shot off that they want to get off. If you're, if you're driving to the hoop and you have your man beat for an easy layup and he fouls you and you finish at the rim and, and they wave it off, right? It's not an and one. They wave it off. Fouls on the floor. Fouls on the floor. Rest pointing down at the court. You're rewarding the defender for getting beat. And yeah, he gets penalized with a foul, but the offense earned those points. And now you're making them earn them again. We always talk about, we want to see more scoring in points. A lot of people do, right? Well, I, I want to see not defenders rewarded for committing penalties, not stopping the game with another whistle. If you're beat and he gets to the rack and gets the layup, two points, play on. No harm, no foul, right? Mm-hmm. Dylan, as a soccer fan, I'm sure that you have a lot to say in regards to that rule change. I agree with a continuation uh, in general. I think that, like, for example, the NBA has it where uh, when there's a, what is it called? Clear path, I think is what it's called clear path foul i still don't think that's appropriate enough because that foul is slowing down a guaranteed basket where now oh well they have to shoot a technical shot that still leaves the potential even if it's like a steve nash where he's at like 94 95 percent his for the season in free throws it still is leaving the chance that that's going to occur uh but in there's actually a specific example that that i was mentioning to paul about uh, his continuation rule. And that was in the Duke, North Carolina semifinal game this past weekend as well. Uh, Duke was down in the waning portions of the game. And I believe it was, it may have been Banchero. I don't, I don't know for certain, but whomever it was beat their defender bad. And the defender fouled and he was in the – basically, the paint was open. It was on the perimeter. The guy did a crossover, completely blew past his defender, defender fouls, and then he's going to the line. And I believe he missed both free throws. They were down three. And if you did that continuation, as Paul had had mentioned, rather than it being on the floor and let the actual natural flow of the motion continue, that's an and one. And that makes it so that game is no longer a three-point game. It could be potentially tied. I mean, that decision could be argued could be the reason why Duke lost that game because it very much looked 
Like, I mean, he was going, it was ready. It looked like it was going to be an and one call and it wasn't. And that decision was pivotal in keeping that gap that North Carolina was able to overcome, despite the fact that they are a terrible shot selection team and probably should have lost that game too. And that's literally proof positive to what Paul was talking about. I I think that's, I I think the flow of the game is so large. I'm going to give you guys about two minutes each, maybe one final thought on basketball. And Paul, I'm going to start with you. Go ahead, man. Theme of the night, flow of the game Ask any basketball fan when the game truly becomes not basketball anymore and all flow is eliminated, and every single one will tell you at the end of games. It just becomes a foul fest in trying to play catch-up, and it is legitimately not basketball. It's gross to watch. There's a million breaks. It's ridiculous. when I. It's an eight-point game and there's two minutes left, and my wife asked me how long it's going to be, and I don't know. It might be five minutes. It might be 25 minutes, depending on how many times we have to go to review, how many out-of-bounds calls we have to check, how many ridiculous inbounds plays. Like, it sucks. It's not good basketball. So, we have seen this in basketball already, just not in a legitimate league, right? A legitimate professional league. The Elam ending is the most revolutionary but greatest adjustment to any sport I've ever seen. Normally, I I look at radical change in anything, but especially sports, and I scoff at it. I think it's ridiculous. I think it's absurd. And I'm not a fan of necessarily massive change, which I know seems weird given what I want to do to the sport of basketball. But listen, the sport of basketball can use a lot of fixing. The Elam ending fixes everything that's wrong with the end of basketball games. It essentially gets rid of intentional fouls to prolong the game. It keeps you playing actual basketball until the very end of the game. It gives you a game-winning shot at the end of every game. It's not going to elongate these games by massive amounts. In fact, it may shorten them by a lot. And it allows the ability for massive comebacks to happen, again, just by playing actual free-flowing basketball. What more could you want? So, Paul, just to kind of enlighten everybody, and then we'll go to Dylan, but explain the Elam ending for those that may not be as familiar with it. No problem. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it in broad stroke because it has actually been utilized in a few different ways. In if the NBA was ever going to do this, which, listen, I, I don't think they're going to. This is what I want to see happen. I don't think it's a great run league. Basketball as a whole could use this. I just don't see the radical change happening. But if it was going to – They would put their own tweaks on it, but the basis of it is quite simple. When you hit a mark near the end of the game, whether it's four minutes left in the fourth quarter, whatever it is, whether it's the under under four minute media timeout, whatever you want to do, when you hit that mark in the game, whatever the score is, say it's 75 to 63, then you add X amount of points to the team that's leading, and that is the target score. So say you added 12 points. So now the target score is 85. And it is a race to 85 points. And whoever gets there first wins the basketball game. So the team that's got 73, they only got to score 12 points. The team that's got or 75 only has to score 7 points, right? 8 points, 12 points, whatever it is. Then the team that's obviously behind, they have to score a lot more points to catch up. But it's possible. We're not racing against the clock anymore. We're just racing to a target score. You're not penalizing the team that's in the lead. But you're not letting them sit on the lead. They have to go out and finish the basketball game. And who likes to watch sports and see teams sit on the lead? I know I don't. Dylan, do you? I don't. And there actually that kind of 
leads into my last thought on this, which is that basketball in general does have an image problem. Uh, I think that the three-point shot is kind of the most indicative of that. But, I mean, on our little stinger, we had LeBron James, and he is part of this issue as well. Part of the thing that of the reason why I hate the three-point shot is it's just lazy basketball. Like, you can just chuck up shots. Long boards are much easier to be able to, to uh, you know, you don't have to box out anymore. Nobody's driving to the paint. Everybody's spread out, just standing there like this. No one cares. That's like a thing, right? NBA players don't seem to care anymore. So not only is it that they're not even playing games where Adam Silver has to come out and say it's a legitimate problem for the league, you also have the flow of the game is making everyone optically when they are playing look like they're lazy. I'm not stating they are. I mean, they're professionals. I mean, like Giannis Antetokounmpo in particular is not a lazy player whatsoever. That dude goes hard. Nikola Jokic goes hard. But some players just... My God, I, I mean, it's like James Harden is a perfect example. Chucks up threes, doesn't play defense, and it's the personification of the problem in the NBA. Elam ending makes it better because then nobody's sitting on leads in doing the same thing where, for example, if you're a team that's behind, is chucking up 10 threes at the end of the game really good for you? Knowing that you have that target there, don't you want to just play your game, play your defense, and try to chip at it the exact same way Kansas did? It's the reason why college basketball is better because you will never be able to sell me ever that there are college basketball players that don't care. Armando Baycott was playing on just a bro- – like his leg was shattered. He shouldn't have been playing. But he said he'd rather be dead than not play in that game. And LeBron James is sitting here and saying, nah. I'm just not going to play for the rest of the year. Ben Simmons, nah, I'm not going to play for the rest of the year. It's an image problem, and it needs to be fixed. Fantastic. That's a a great way to end our discussion on the hardwood. And to bring this to a Midwest connection, I want to move from the hardwood to the gridiron. And I want to talk about the offseason that the Detroit Lions have had. You know, they're in a rebuilding process, and – Every time it seems that a receiver gets traded or big name moves from one team to the other, the conversation is always around, why didn't the Lions pick up the phone and talk to them? Why didn't the Lions do this? Why didn't the Lions get them into the fold to to jumpstart and and move this rebuild around? And I just want to have you guys discuss, and Paul, we're going to start with you. Like, Evaluate a little bit of the Lions offseason but then answer the question, do they need to be chasing stars two years into this rebuild? You know, I've actually matured a lot in recent years because I re- I've come to realize that not everybody obsessively follows sports the way that we do. And there's nothing wrong with just watching sports for entertainment, relaxing, cracking a beer, and watching your team on Sundays without caring a lot about the process and understanding a lot about the process. And these people, listen, you see it all over social media. They call into the radio. They all have opinions, despite not obsessing over sports the way they do. And they're normally bad. And that used to upset me. It used to bother me. And an older me would say that the first way to identify yourself as a filthy casual that doesn't understand the game is to get upset when the Lions don't try to trade for Devontae Adams or Tyreek Hill. But I've matured. 
I am way past that. I promise I am. And what I have come to realize is that you're just someone that wants to enjoy sports. You don't care about the process. You just want your team to win. So when you see other teams acquiring stars, you sit back and you say, hmm, I wish we had some stars. Our team isn't very good. What me and Dylan are here to explain is that that is not how you build a team. It is not how you get to the next level and actually win playoff games, something that a lot of Lions fans have never seen, ever. Think about how many Lions fans are on this earth that have never seen a playoff victory. There's a lot of them. I I, I don't want to date myself. I'm one of them. (laughs) It's, It's not good. It's very, very, very bad. We don't fix that by trading our assets that we have tanked so hard to gather and then blowing a ton of money and picks on receivers that can't help us win right now. You had what is now a Super Bowl winning quarterback along with arguably the best receiver the NFL has ever seen and you didn't win a single playoff game. What makes you think that the answer is taking this much worse roster led by Jared Goff in adding Tyreek Hill to it. How does that get closer to a Super Bowl? Yeah, I tend to agree with you, but I'm interested to hear what Dylan has to say. The reason why we're even bringing this up in the first place is I will not name names, but there are individuals in high levels of specifically the local media who are now making this something that is so predictable that you can guarantee that if there is any big name whatsoever that is able to be on the market and gettable, they're going to be tied to the Lions in the sense that the individuals will say, why didn't the Lions call? Why didn't you try this? Why didn't you at least attempt it? And that's one of the most dishonest things ever. It's a root for radio type of deal because you're not doing it on actual intellectual honesty. You're doing it because you want to have that discussion. Like Deshaun Watson, why didn't they call on him? It's real easy. You are not going to give up that much capital in the current state that you're in for him when he's not even guaranteed to play. The Browns can do that because the roster is ready. Yours is not. Why are you even asking that question? I know why. Because you need to get people to call your radio station. I, I get it. I understand. I don't hate the hustle. I hate the intellectual dishonesty of it. Then you have Tyreek Hill. Same exact deal on top of a contract extension. Not really something a rebuild staff going to need. And it's just frustrating when anytime it's like, oh, we'll call. Like, it was specifically about who was it that that just was on the market that the Jets offered? Oh, D- DK Metcalf. That was it. DK Metcalf. There were reports that the New York Jets were offering the number 10 overall pick for DK Metcalf. Why are you even having that topic as a discussion? You were, would never do that. Ever. Never, never, never. And to say, oh, well, the Jets did it. Yeah, the the Jets, dude. What? They're a horrible organization with their owner who's more interested in Europe than he is here. What what is your point? Why are you bringing this up? It's not because you actually believe this, which makes it worse because you're just doing it to beg the question. I hate it. It's it's interesting, right? But everybody's... Everybody is attracted to the shiny object. Everybody is attracted to the name on the back of the jersey. But I'm interested to hear kind of a follow-up to these chasing star conversations. How would you evaluate kind of the offseason so far? 
And is there something else you might have done differently? So the Lions made a lot of shrewd moves this offseason by not making a lot of moves. They didn't make a bunch of trades and waste draft capital. They didn't spend a bunch of money. If you look at some of the money they spent, so everyone has complained that we need a receiver for a while, which I vehemently disagree with. Receivers are something that when you're real close and the rest of your team is ready, then you can acquire them. You don't need to spend a bunch of capital on them. But we went and we got a guy like DJ Chark. One-year contract, gave him $10 bucks. DJ Chark, young speedster from Jacksonville, has a lot of potential. Has had some issues, namely being part of the Jacksonville Jaguars. Not not a great organization. Haven't been a great team lately. Hasn't had a quarterback. I don't know if Jared Goff's going to be better. But DJ Chark is a young kid with a lot of potential, and he's had a lot of flashes in the NFL so far. So you kind of address a short-term need at receiver, but you do it without committing any future resources. This is a one-year deal. And you might say, okay, Paul, well, if we're not close to contending, what's the point of a one-year deal? Well, there's several points to it. Number one being you spend money, you make sure you're not too far under the cap, you're hitting the cap floor, it's not a big deal. And you're, you're addressing a need, right? We did need receivers. Everybody's complaining about it. So you get a receiver in here. But what if DJ Chark goes off this year? And what if we're like, wow, he's going to get a $20 million a year contract and we probably shouldn't re-sign him because we're not ready for a $20 million a year receiver. That's great because then he goes and gets that five-year $100 million deal and then we get a compensatory pick in return for a free agent signing. Now we got a third-round pick just because we signed a guy for a year and he helped us in the meantime and then he left, got a big deal. And if he, what if he doesn't? What if he has a bad year? Do we lose anything? Did, are we hurt this year? Listen, we were, we don't need him to win a Super Bowl. We're not winning a Super Bowl this year. We're not even thinking about winning a Super Bowl this year. And maybe he's bad because of our quarterback situation. Maybe he has a down year statistically, but you say, you know what? I think he's still decent. I think we can get him for like three years, $24 million and lock him up and he can be part of our rebuild. There's a lot of ways to approach this, but it's a super low risk signing and that's what pretty much all of our signings were this offseason, the few that we made. You can argue, yes, maybe we maybe we threw a little bit too much money at Tracy Walker. But three years, $24 million bucks, similar to what I just mentioned for Chark, $8 million a year. Yeah, it's kind of a lot for what he is, but it's not going to hurt you. That kind of money isn't killing your team. You're not handing out $100 million contracts that if they don't pan out, they're going to hurt your team. So we've sat back. We have our draft capital that we're approaching the draft with a lot, starting with the number two overall pick, and you haven't hurt yourself monetarily, but you also haven't just been entirely asleep at the wheel. I, I don't know what more you could have wanted because anything else the Lions could have done could have hurt us in the future, and they didn't do that. So I have no complaints. Dylan? One big theme that Paul and I very much in agreement on and it is my one of the hard lines that i have is that draft capital draft picks in the nfl are the most valuable commodity in all of sports you do not throw them around willy-nilly like they are just something they're like lottery tickets as it's always called if you're a well-run organization that's not what that is it's roster construction and as the nfl and as we've known for a long time it is very important to not only have starters that are worth a damn, but on top of that, having guys to back them up or having guys who can play multiple positions. Extremely important on that. And draft capital is not something that I am interested in throwing away 
for someone who is a, who is fancy or a spark plug or order for the shock or the wow factor. I don't understand the logic behind let's go after, let's use DK Metcalf as an example. You're telling me that you think it's a good idea to get rid of, let's say, 32 and 34, which to be fair, from what we've heard, is not, they wouldn't even accept that offer. But let's say that's the case. He's on a one-year deal, meaning you would have to sign him. You're getting rid of two, as long as the track record of Brad Holmes is what it is, two pretty much guaranteed starters for a receiver with a quarterback who isn't necessarily even your future. And by the time you get the one that you would want, there's not there's a potential chance that Metcalf isn't even here. He could sign elsewhere, or then you sign him to a bloated contract and you have holes to fill. I don't understand the logic here. Why would you, in a roster that isn't ready anywhere whatsoever, you, you are not ready to instead of having five, six, potentially even seven starters, depending on what you do with the number two pick, why in the hell would you get rid of all of those rookie deals for one cap is a big thing. I know Paul's going to mention in a minute. Why would you get rid of all of those rookie deals, all of those starters to fill those spots just to get a guy that you really can't even use right now in the first place? It makes no sense. Yeah, for sure. And I'm, I'm with you on that. And, you know, I agree with, you know, the shrewd moves by not making a move comment that you made, Paul, and, and and Dylan, to your point about the draft capital and how important that is for a rebuilding team. I'm going to ask you one final question here and give you each a few minutes to respond to this. Is there anything for the Detroit Lions that you would have liked to have seen them do this offseason that maybe they either A, haven't yet, or missed the boat on? Paul, go ahead and start. I really only have one, and it's something that probably a lot of fans will not agree with me on, but I would have liked to see this team try to move Taylor Decker. Taylor Decker is viewed in the NFL as probably a top 15 left tackle, maybe even top 10. Uh, He had a pretty darn decent season last year when he wasn't hurt. Uh, One of his better seasons, he still can't run block a lick. But he is one of the better pass protectors in the NFL. The problem with Taylor Decker is Taylor Decker is making a lot of money. I want to say like 16 million bucks. And he's not even our best option at left tackle. And I'm all for devoting a ton of money to the offensive line. I just think that we could possibly improve on Taylor Decker for cheaper or devote that money elsewhere to more problematic positions on the line like guard. And you say, listen, we're set at center and we have bookend tackles. What more do you want? Well, one... I want Panay Suhul playing left tackle because that's his better position. And while he did come into his own at right tackle next last year, this is, in my opinion, someone that could develop into a Hall of Fame caliber left tackle. And that's where I want to see him be, especially on his rookie contract. Then you look at how this draft may work out. Well, Aiden Hutchinson probably isn't going to be there at two. And if he's not there at two, the best prospects on the board – are the two big hog offensive tackles that you could easily replace Decker with. What are you getting in return for Decker? Decker's going to fetch you a first-round pick. I think you can absolutely get a first-round pick in the 20s at least for Taylor Decker. The NFL views him as a good starting left tackle. That is an extremely rare and hot commodity, but you have two. And that's kind of lucky. And I know we're not in a position where, why are we trading away all of our talent? We're not. 
We're trading away one guy that makes a lot of money, get more draft capital, and possibly replace him with a draft pick, or be able to move around money and get a little bit cheaper right tackle and have a little bit more to spend or draft on guard. I think it makes a lot of sense. Think about if you were to trade Decker for a pick in the 20s, and then you draft Evan Neal at number two overall because Hutchinson's not there, and then you get a starting guard with a pick that you traded Taylor Decker for. Does that not make this team better than it is now? And on top of it, it saves you money because now you're filling two holes and you're paying a lot less money to do it. These are the kind of moves that I think would take the Lions to the next level from that GM perspective, but I'm not upset that they didn't, and I'm going to see how things play out. Now, Dylan, I know that this show is a Midwest-centric show, and you are our Chicago connection. And there will be times for you to talk about your Bears, but I do want you to kind of evaluate maybe the Lions offseason in the sense that uh, you are a division rival of ours. Your Bears are. Is there anything that has you maybe worried about playing Detroit twice in the coming years? Well, based on everything that we've discussed and all of the picks that you have, the Lions are going to be able to be a full roster much faster than the Bears are. Yes, the Bears have the rookie quarterback, so hopefully he winds up working out. But in terms of like full time, like end to end roster, as of right now, I would rather have the Lions roster. And especially, I would rather be in the Lions situation because you, within two drafts, which is always the thing that everyone always talks about, is quick rebuilds in the NFL, right? You have the potential where within two drafts, your entire roster can be the best in the division and like not have it not be close and be one of the best in the conference. That's the goal. And then you can do something like the Denver Broncos did where their roster was perfect in every way except quarterback. With the way that the mobility works now, I don't see any reason for why you would want to get the quarterback until the rest is completed. And that is the thing that Brad Holmes and Dan Campbell seem to actually be kind of playing with. I, I actually think the rhetoric around the whole Jared Goff is our guy, we believe in him, is because they want to stave off the fact that after this dude's contract is over, they're throwing him in the trash and they're going to get somebody else. I, that seems to be what the move is to me. It's shrewd, it's pragmatic, and I love it. And it's terrifying for me because the Bears roster did the exact opposite. We traded draft picks to get Mitch Trubisky. We traded draft picks to get Khalil Mack. We traded draft picks to get Justin Fields. We are doing the thing you should not be. Learn from our mistakes and do what you're doing the right way. And your roster eventually, and even right now, is proof of why that is the way to go. Fantastic. And, you know, it just tickles my ears to hear a Chicagoan talk about the Lions in that way. Now, one of the things that we do want to do here at the big picture is we're going to end every show giving the guys an opportunity about five to seven minutes to just kind of get off their chest, whatever they want to do. Call it therapy, call it a monologue, call it a diatribe. It doesn't matter what you call it. All we know is that you're going to get their hottest take, best opinion, whatever they need to get off their chest, they will do in this next minute that we call their big picture. So, Paul, what's your big picture for this week? 
My big picture continues what we've been talking about, the Lions rebuild and how they can get to contention eventually. This is all about giving contention and not giving up a ton of assets to do it. What is the hardest part for a rebuilding football team? I think pretty much everyone would agree it's getting your quarterback. How many times have we seen, even if you tank and get the top pick and pick a quarterback, he doesn't pan out. People in Chicago would well know this. They gave up a lot of draft capital to move up to number two, draft their quarterback. For whatever reason, whether you blame coaching or the player himself or a combination of the two, it didn't work out. This is a common thing. The theme here is you need to take often several shots to get your quarterback position right. And the reason this is so dangerous for rebuilding teams and why teams like the Jacksonville Jaguars are stuck rebuilding for a decade plus is because it's so hard to get quarterback right. They don't pan out frequently and they cost so much to acquire. What did Chicago give up to trade up and get Mitch Trubisky just last season? What did the Niners give up to go up to number three and draft Trey Lance? This is a huge acquisition. And even if you're sitting there like the Lions this year with the number two pick, well, now there's not a quarterback worthy of taking at number two this season. And maybe there is, but you're still blowing a number two pick on somebody that has the most volatile pan out rate in the entire sport. So the point is, if you're getting lottery tickets, you want as many as you can for as cheap as possible, and you want to use them in ways that have the highest percentage of panning out. There happens to be a lottery ticket out there right now in the league waiting for a new home, and that lottery ticket is Baker Mayfield. And I think Baker Mayfield would be the perfect acquisition for the Detroit Lions for several reasons. Number one, it's usually incredibly costly to acquire a quarterback. He's going to be cheap because the Browns are desperate to get rid of him. They don't have anywhere to put Baker Mayfield. They went and traded Deshaun Watson. Baker demanded a trade out of there. He doesn't want anything to do with Cleveland. And Cleveland doesn't need two starting caliber quarterbacks. So already they're desperate to get him out of there. I don't know if you guys have noticed lately, but Cleveland's phone has not been blowing up trying for teams trying to trade for Baker Mayfield. Baker Mayfield maybe could be had for like a third round pick. I don't know what he's actually going to go for. Maybe it's a late first. Maybe it's a second. Maybe it's a conditional first round pick that could be a second or a third pick. What I do know is if it's not a top 25 pick, even if it was around that area, right? Like you're not giving up a top 10 pick. I wouldn't mind taking a shot on Baker Mayfield. And you might say, why? Baker Mayfield sucks. Baker Mayfield hasn't performed. He's a midget quarterback that was a walk-on in college, and he's not cut out for the NFL. Well, I've seen this story before, and I want to be very clear up front here. I'm not saying that Baker Baker Mayfield is going to be Drew Brees. So when I get attacked at the audacity that I have of comparing Baker Mayfield and Drew Brees, I want you to understand where I'm coming from and that what I am comparing is their first few years in the league that are kind of identical. You see, Drew Brees went to a not-that-good San Diego team. And Drew Brees started in San Diego for four years, just like Baker Mayfield has in Cleveland. Drew Brees played 59 games for San Diego. Baker Mayfield's played 60 games for the Cleveland Browns. Okay, you see where I'm going with this, right? Well, let's see how they did. Baker Mayfield, average yards in attempt, seven. Drew Brees, average yards and attempt in San Diego, 6.8. Those are similar numbers. Pastor rating, 
84.9 for Drew Brees. Passer rating for Baker Mayfield, 87.8. These are very similar numbers. What did these quarterbacks have knocked on them when they came out of college? They're short quarterbacks. Drew Brees, only six foot. There's not a lot of six foot signal callers in the NFL. Baker Mayfield, six foot one. We have seen Baker Mayfield have success in the NFL in a lot of ups and downs. Two years ago, he, or a couple years ago, he had a pretty darn decent season. A couple years before he was on the outs in San Diego, in large part due to a shoulder injury, Drew Brees had a pretty good season. What happened to Baker Mayfield this last year? He injured his shoulder. He tried to play through a shoulder injury. Let's not forget that Baker Mayfield led Cleveland to the playoffs. Who is the last quarterback to lead Cleveland to the playoffs? This is a quarterback that, to me, there's so many similarities. Touchdown percentage for Baker Mayfield, 4.8. Drew Brees in San Diego, 4.4. Interception for both quarter, interception percentage, both quarterbacks, 2.9%. Both quarterbacks, their first four years starting in the league. Such similar profiles. Why does this matter? Does this mean Baker Mayfield's going to turn into Drew Brees? No. Drew Brees got in the right spot in New Orleans with the right coach and developed a ton. But what it does mean is that the book is far from written on Baker Mayfield. In a modern league where we want to write the book on quarterbacks after a year or two years and act like that they cannot blossom or change or evolve, Baker Mayfield gave Cleveland more success than they've had in so long, so long if not ever, right? And now they're done with him because they want to get the next new shiny toy in. And Baker coming off a shoulder injury, needing to rejuvenate his career, why couldn't he do it in Detroit? Why couldn't he be our Drew Brees? I, I don't know if he's going to, but to me it's a risk worth taking because quarterbacks are hard to hit. And that's a lottery pick that's not costing you three first-round picks to trade up and get. So you you get him. He, he's making like 18 million bucks this year. Even if he doesn't pan out, he's a much better bridge quarterback than Jared Goff, and he'll certainly make us much more interesting to watch, which is not ever why you go and acquire assets, but it's a perk being a fan, right? He comes here and you say, listen, you're trying to rejuvenate your career. If you if you wash out here, you're probably never going to start in the NFL again. A la Jared Goff is probably never going to start in the NFL again outside of like injuries or just an exceptionally bad team. You offer him, hey, we'll extend your deal. We'll give you two years and another $40 million. You get a little bit of job security. $20 million for a quarterback is nothing in today's league, especially while we're rebuilding. Maybe he takes the deal. Maybe he doesn't. But then you get a couple years while you're rebuilding to figure out if he's your long-term answer. And if he's your long-term answer, you've solved the hardest problem to solve. And if he's not, if he never gets on that Drew Brees trajectory, what did it cost you? A second-round pick? Some money? You have to pay a quarterback anyway. It doesn't cost you a lot to find out. And then you didn't waste a ton of draft capital, and now you can actually make a move to get your replacement. And again, Baker Mayfield is a funner and better bridge to your next quarterback. There is so little downside here, and it's another lottery ticket. Take your chance, Detroit. Go get Baker Mayfield. Interesting. I You laid that out. You convinced me almost. I was not, not a Baker fan, and the idea of the Lions getting Baker Mayfield was not something I was interested in. However, Paul, you make a very compelling case. Dylan, we're going to switch to you, man. What's your big picture this week? So my big picture, and we've 
already posted one on our socials, hopefully, by the time that this one comes out, where I was extremely hard on the Michigan State seniors that left this year for the basketball team. That is a vibe that I'm going to continue with a little more positive spin. So for my first big picture, official big picture, I wanted to talk about the series Winning Time that's out on HBO Max. First off, it, not paid endorsement, it is phenomenal and you need to see it. If you're a sports fan of any semblance, you need to watch that series. It is the best one that's come out probably since the Bronx is burning, I would say, so, uh, uh, in that caliber where it's not actually a true documentary. But with the Winning Time series, there is an event that occurs, and I, I don't want to go into spoiler territory for younger viewers who haven't actually seen or known about the history of the Showtime Lakers. But the series follows Dr. Jerry Buss when he acquires the Laker team, follows Magic Johnson, and how all those pieces came together to create an NBA dynasty. And within it, there is a decision that is made that changes the course of how the team functions, operates, and how they're going to go moving forward. This brings up the principle and pretty much the sole rule that I follow, which is pragmatism. Feelings, emotions are thrown in with fans because fans have emotional connections to their teams. But sports are not about your feelings, not in what we all want, which is winning. To win, you need to be brutal. You need to be a red ass, as the phrase goes. You need to be able to be an absolute bastard at times, and you cannot allow for feelings to take hold. Now, in my personal life, I'm much more of a democratic socialist type of attitude. Everything is about fairness. It's about equality, about sunshine and rainbows, worker solidarity, and all that kind of stuff. But in sports, complete opposite. I, the coldest individuals in the world, I will celebrate those moves to the end of time. When there is a player who's been with the franchise for 10 years, given solid service, and you cut him to make cap space in order to make a frugal move for maybe a guy who has a bad history record with, he was arrested or he was known as a problem in, a, in other franchises and you get him anyway and you replace him with a, a good old boy and you replace him with an absolute mean MF guy. That is the type of thing that wins titles. In the winning time series, this is personified best with a phenomenal an Emmy-worthy performance from Michael Chiklis, formerly of The Shield, and he plays Red Auerbach, notorious godfather of the Boston Celtics dynasty that lasted decades. And in that, you see that there's this subversion because you would think, I mean, Jerry Buss, he's a, he's a very enigmatic guy, has a lot of energy, and he's trying to get the answer out of Red Auerbach. Hey, how can I make this franchise tick? How can I make them win? They're losers right now. How can I be like you? And Red Auerbach takes his cigar, his noted cigar, throws it on the floor of the forum, and tells Jerry Buss to screw off. That is the type of attitude why Red Auerbach wins. It is the reason why winning dynasties last as long as they do and win the titles they do. Think in your life, and for a lot of our viewers, it's going to be in the 2000s and on. Think of the dynasties that have occurred in your lifetime. How many of them were pals? 
How many of them were friends? How many of these teams, these dynasties that you see, would you describe them as good people? Tom Brady and Bill Belichick weren't pals. Tom Brady and Bruce Arians weren't pals, clearly. LeBron James and every single one of his coaches, all 20 of them that he's ran out the floor, how many times have we heard stories about guys being absolute bastards and still winning? Michael Jordan was a guy that I know in the city of Detroit is not liked very much. But in the documentary that came out during the pandemic, it was it, it just showed the reason why Michael was the best. Because he didn't care. Winning is the bottom line. That's the whole reason we do what we're doing. We're not here to be friends. We're not here to be pals. We're not here for good feels. We're here for brass, for gold, for any of these titles in any forms that they're in. And Michael Jordan, and there's a point in the documentary that I think is just beautiful, where he's being introspective. And the documentarian is trying to get this answer out of him of regret that he has over the way that he treated his teammates. And he said, look, if you're not with me and you're not on that winning attitude, then I don't want you. I don't care. I don't give it, give a crap about your feelings. I, I, it doesn't matter to me. What matters to me is at the end of the season, at the end of our careers, how many of those titles have we won? I don't care about how many people tell me how good of a guy I was. I care about how many people say I was the best. That's an attitude that's missing in a lot of sports now. We talked about the NBA and its softness. Uh, there's a, a trend that I despise, which is everybody's pals now. You should be hating the people who you are literally competing against. It is a competition. It's sports. It's not real life. You should not be friends with the people who you're living. Your entire wages are based around. Your jobs are based around. If I were a coach in particular and I see my team and all of my star players yucking it up after we just lost by 20 points again to the Brooklyn Nets, I'm like, screw that. It's my job on the line. It's your job on the line and your legacy. You need to care about it. And that is the thing that is going to be the case throughout this entire show that is going to happen whenever I am talking. I'm not here to have anybody be friends. I'm not here to have anybody have fun. I'm here to win. And if you're not winning, and that's it. Man, Dylan, you always find a way, a way to put in a plug for the Democratic Socialists, which I, I guess am happy about. I don't know. But it is amazing how our philosophies as far as sports line up. Winning is literally all that matters. Guys, thanks for those monologues. I learned a lot, and I'm very appreciative of them. That is going to do it for us here on The Big Picture tonight. Remember to check out all of our content on our YouTube page. You can get all of the latest shows that we have there. For Paul Roshan and Dylan Bear, I am your moderator, AJ Riley, and we will see you next week.